Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A recent report says the Colorado River is America's most endangered. Today we're going to talk with reporter Alex Hager. You hear his reporting from the Colorado River Reporting Project regularly on UPR. We'll talk about uh, several topics under this heading of Colorado River. We'll talk about federal mandates to the Colorado River states to conserve water. Plans to increase water level in Lake Powell. Possibilities to get additional water through desalination and uh, much more. Uh, Alex Hager, uh, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so tell us first about the Colorado River Reporting Project. What is this? Well, this is a, uh, a conglomeration of about 20-odd NPR member stations throughout the Colorado River Basin, which sprawls across uh, a pretty wide swath of the southwest. Uh, so myself and Luke Runyon, uh, we run the project based out of uh, northern Colorado, and we pull together stories from throughout the basin. So this is a region where 40 million people depend on water from one river, and that includes cities like Denver and Salt Lake City and Phoenix and Albuquerque and Los Angeles and an awful lot of agricultural and economic activity in between. So there are a lot of stories to tell about the law and the science of how that water is used and shared and right now is rapidly getting depleted. Um, so there are stations very much like UPR um, you know, that includes uh, also Salt Lake City and Moab uh, in your state there. But uh, we've also got partners in Arizona and Wyoming and just about everywhere in between uh, that carry our stories as we uh, try to help the 40 million people who use the river understand it a little better. Well, we appreciate that reporting and uh, listeners will have heard your reports and Luke's as well. Uh, appreciate that. Um, I want to start with this uh, report. This is from American Rivers, I believe. Uh, Colorado River is America's most endangered. Uh, we have a sense of that, right? Uh, water levels are, uh, I don't know, historic lows, right? Yes. Uh, the amount of water that is remaining in the system is getting lower, you know, at this point, practically by the day. Um, and that's very visible when you look at places like Lakes Powell and Mead, which are the nation's two largest reservoirs. And really important parts of kind of storage for the folks who use it. That's really insurance to make sure that whether it's a wet year or a dry year, a consistent amount of water can be passed along to the people who use it. Um, but really, the, the fact of the matter is it's just a supply-demand imbalance. You know, there have been a lot of conservation efforts over the years to make sure that we can stretch the amount of water that we do have. There have been programs to cut back on how much water is used in cities where people are you know, moving away from lush green lawns and there's more use of recycled water or, you know, treated effluent to water city parks and things like that. So the water supply has been stretched. But as more people move to this region and there's steady demand from cities and farms, the fact of the matter is less water is entering the system. Climate change means that it's getting warmer. It means that it's snowing less. It means that snow is melting faster. And the amount of water that we depended on entering the system every year is changing. And that is in the face of steady demand, and it's just throwing the balance out of whack. You talked, you had one story where you talked to, uh, you looked at a study uh, where they, they went back, what, 800 years, uh, I believe, um, and revealed the region's worst drought on record. I guess the good news is we're not in the worst drought in record right now, although it's pretty pretty bad. Yeah, there is some precedent for drought of this size, but it's 
certainly likely that this one could surpass it. Uh, basically, the way this study works was uh, spearheaded by some folks down at the University of Arizona. Uh, Connie Woodhouse was the main research- researcher on this one. Um, and they looked at tree rings. They cut cross-sections of, you know, historic, uh, you know, wood from from sort of prehistoric time. And um, they're not prehistoric, but dating back, you know, about 2,000 years, and found that uh, – I believe 1,200 years ago was the first finding that there was a, a massive drought sort of tantamount to the one we're in now. And then another study came out and pushed that back 1,800 years, I believe. Uh, and so we're looking at, you know, the year 200, basically, is the last time that we saw a drought of this magnitude. However, there is one thing that's different, and that's the fact that this one is almost indisputably being accelerated by human activity. Uh, The connection between climate change and this drought is something that shows up in almost every piece of science that you can find about water in the West. And basically what a lot of that research is saying is that, yes, it is normal for there to be ebb and flow of water availability, especially in this region. But right now, that water availability and that ebb and flow is getting sort of reshaped by the fact that human emissions have led to warmer temperatures and a lot of different dominoes fall after you raise temperatures. It means that more precipitation is falling as rain rather than snow. So you have less water stored up in the mountains for gradual release to the places where humans collect it. It means that the soil is drying out. So it acts like a sponge when that snow is melting It soaks it up, and less of it finds its way to rivers and lakes. And the effect, if you look at charts, you know, you'll see this sort of standard ebb and flow, but you'll start to see things kind of tail off at a rate that they haven't before when you look at the window we're in right now, and that is because of the impact of human-caused climate change. I think it's worth underlining that, uh, you know, aridification, but also the moisture we do get is not being stored uh, up in the mountains, right? We're getting it more as, as rain. What, what's the problem there? Well, that's sort of the major factor, right? So uh, snow is incredibly important to water in the Colorado River Basin. Even when you have strong rains during the summer, you know, it's great for, for farms and ranches, and it's great for Uh, vegetation up in the hills, and it's great for preventing wildfire, but realistically, it isn't adding that much to our water supply. Um, And when we look at water in the Colorado River, about 60% of it falls as wintertime snowfall just in the state of Colorado. A a lot of the other uh, winter snow uh, is coming from Wyoming and and sort of some other high-altitude portions of the Colorado River Basin. But basically, snow is mother nature's greatest reservoir uh you know really all we're doing when we build man-made reservoirs is just giving ourselves a little bit of insurance there is ebb and flow you're gonna have wet years you're gonna have dry years but if you store that water for gradual release it means you can control when you're getting that water and snow is nature's way of doing that for us uh even though you know you might start to See your ski seasons end or ski seasons start to change towards the end of March or April. When we're talking real high altitude, that snow isn't melting off until June. You know, you're seeing peak runoff in June and lingering into July in a lot of cases, especially especially when the snow is strong. And so when you're seeing warm temperatures cause that to fall as rain, when you're seeing warm temperatures cause that to fall uh earlier in the season and, and, and melt off earlier in the season. And when you're seeing temperatures change the amount that falls, period, you don't have that natural reservoir to fall back on that had been an integral part of, you know, how we expected water to arrive every year. 
Uh, tell me more about the ridification. You, you've talked to some scientists and some reporting uh, on on this. That's uh, sounds like that's a problem, right? Soil drying out, for example. Yeah, aridification is, is an important term. It basically means the, the, the long-term resetting of our baseline for how much water we can expect. So aridification, a lot of scientists are saying, is, is how we should be talking about this drought. Because drought sort of implies that this is temporary, that it's something that is kind of going to go away. But, you know, we are now in year 22, going on year 23 of drought. And they're saying we should change the baseline. It's no longer just a drought, but it's a full reset of how much water we can expect to show up every year. And that's showing up in so many different data points, you know, largely with climate change being the deciding factor in some of this. But when we look at how much snow there is, when we look at how much snow is melting, when we look at how much water is getting added to the system every year, when we look at how dry the soil is, all of those things are skewing in the drier direction. And scientists are saying we shouldn't expect it to look like it did 20, 30 years ago ever again. And this juxtaposed with growing population, right? Therein lies a problem. Yes. And realistically, um, you know, cities have actually been some of the leaders in conservation. And even through growing population, a lot of cities like to brag, you know, we use the same quantity of water as we did during the 70s. And a lot of that is because they oftentimes don't have no choice. They're only legally entitled to a certain quantity of water. And even as, as hundreds of thousands of people join their populations, they have to figure out how to stretch that water across more faucets. And for the most part, cities have actually been quite good at that. Uh, quite good at that. And, and you'll see in places like Las Vegas, which are sort of these glaring visual examples of an oasis in the desert, you know, they've actually been one of the leaders in conservation. And, you know, even though the, the visual of the giant Bellagio fountain in the middle of this incredibly arid region is not great optics, they have actually done a tremendous amount of work to recapture water and put it back in the system to 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 you know, decrease water use in the first place to get rid of grassy lawns in a place where grassy lawns just don't make biological sense. And and that's the case for cities, you know, across the seven states that make up the Colorado River Basin. Some have certainly done better than others. But as population has grown, cities for the last three to five decades have actually done a fairly good job of stretching that water. But the real question is, how much further can they stretch it, right? You know, there's been a lot of slack on the municipal side for quite a while, but realistically, there's only so much you can conserve. And so now we are starting to reach a point where there are some serious questions that have to be asked about if we can't stretch it that much further, where else can we reduce water use? And uh, I believe, uh, is it 80% of the water Colorado River water is, is agriculture? Just about that, yeah. Between mm-hmm. 70 and 80%, depending on how you look at the numbers. You know, it's a booming agricultural industry. The very fact that this country and really many parts of the world can have fresh greens on the table in the heart of winter is a product of the fact that Colorado River water is used in places that are good for growing. Um, You know, if you go down to the deserts of Arizona and Southern California, the Imperial Valley, Coachella Valley, uh, the Yuma area of Arizona, there's a tremendous amount of leafy greens that can be grown because it's a very controllable climate. It's fairly arid, but that means that they can grow things straight through the winter. And so, you know, sort of the, the grocery shelves that we have come to expect in this country 
are largely a product of the fact that there is a lot of water being used for agriculture in the Colorado River Basin. However, now that the supply side has diminished so much, um, it, there have been legal protections that have uh, kept the water flowing to those agricultural users. And without like a complete rewriting of the very basis for the Colorado River's you know, legal allocation of water, <clears throat> it's unlikely that, that those places are those growers are, are likely to lose theirs. However, now that we're talking about serious need for cutbacks, uh, basically because just the system is so overextended, it's more than likely going to come for some of those growers and ranchers because they make up such a huge slice. I mean, I've, I've heard people who are in this business who have long seen, uh, you know, agriculture is a little bit untouchable, say, Look, it's simply a numbers game now. We have to find water somewhere, and they're using the most of it. Understand uh, from your reporting, or maybe yours or Luke's, um, the uh, a big agreement is coming up for renewal in what twenty twenty six. Correct. Yeah, in twenty twenty six, there's going to be a major renegotiation of the uh, rules by which we operate the river. And right now we're sort of in this posturing phase of trying to figure out, uh, you know, how uh, states and tribes and, uh, you know, agricultural users can all kind of come to the table uh, and say, here is what we're willing to give up while still protecting the interests of our constituents. And so it's a little bit of a standoff. Uh, Everyone says we cannot make it out of this without collaboration. Um, There have been, you know, a lot of different state stakeholders who have said the only way out of this is if we all agree to sacrifice a little bit. But when it comes down to brass tacks, there has not been a lot of outward willingness for states to be the first one to step forward and say, I'm willing to sacrifice some. Um, And it may be a test of, of the ability of the federal government to come in and make that decision for them in some cases. Uh, but realistically, uh, there is going to have to be some sacrifice of how much water every state is using. And those negotiations are going to need to be decided by 2026. So we're in the earliest phases right now of figuring out how those conversations are going to go. They're going to be very tough conversations. Uh, there has not been a uh, sort of renegotiation of the rules like this in quite a while. And there is going to need to be a, a new baseline for how much water uh, states and the cities and farms in them can expect to get every year. That's important, isn't it? A new baseline, um, and uh, you know, try to get it right. Right. I've heard that the, the you know previous uh, back when the compact was was signed, I can't remember when that was. Uh, it was based on kind of historic uh, high levels, which which has caused problems through the years. That is correct. Um, the compact was signed. This is actually about the century anniversary of the compact. Uh, so it, it was in 1922 when that was drawn up. And the Colorado River Compact is like very much the, the sort of arena that we're playing in when we make decisions about the river. It was the very first, uh, I won't say it's the very first, but it is the foundational document for how we understand how the river gets divvied up today. Um, and it is based on a system of prior appropriation, which basically means <clears throat> that the first groups to use it are the ones that get to retain the ability to use it. So it doesn't necessarily matter uh, you know, if you can prove how worthwhile it is that you are using water in any particular place, but it's sort of first come, first serve. And those water rights that we see, you know, the water rights that are being used today, whether they be for farms or cities, 
are largely based on this 100-year-old agreement. But like you said, it was written in a time when water uh, availability was much different. So, you know, across the board, uh, things have gotten drier, especially just within the last 20 uh, to 30 years. But there is historical research that shows the compact was likely written based off of an extraordinarily wet year. So not only were things just a little bit wetter 100 years ago, kind of before we start to see climate change sink its talons into the water availability situation out here, there was also, you know, a a one-off outlier back then. Uh, So coming up in 26, this is is not a renegotiation of the compact, right? This is uh, something based on the... On the compact, so things like prior appropriation uh, probably won't won't be on the table. It is not. It's more than likely that the sort of essential facts of the compact are going to stay the same. It's entirely possible that they could change, but not necessarily likely. Um, you know, there has been some discussion, sort of in the legal theory space, of just how much have the facts of climate change and water availability, you know really just changed the playing field to the fact that we need to rewrite some of those most foundational rules. But at the end of the day, I wouldn't expect much of the compact to be changed itself, but I would expect new rules to sort of amend the way that we interpret and use the compact, because there certainly is precedent for that. Even within the last 20 years, we've seen a lot of different kind of, we've seen a patchwork of these little Band-Aid measures for, Uh, you know, that allow the states to sort of deal with the fact that they have to play by the rules of the compact, but they have to do so with much less water on hand. And, of course, high stakes, right? Uh, you got to get water to people and uh, agriculture and all these different uh, constituents. And uh, you got the fact that there there seems to be continual tension between upper basin states and lower basin states. That's one of the major tensions here, right? So the, the, there are 40 million people throughout the basin that use the water, and that is everywhere from Wyoming down through Mexico. That's, you know, 30 federally recognized Indian tribes. It is the nation of Mexico. It is agriculture. It is big cities. The stakes are very high. Uh, but like I said, there's a lot of posturing of people who say that there needs to be compromise and say that there needs to be agreement and has not done that much to step forward and show how that's going to manifest. And one of the major tensions there is between the upper basin and the lower basin. So uh, of the seven states in the Colorado River Basin, the upper basin consists of uh, Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico. And those states uh, sort of contend that, you know, this is where the water falls, and we have to take cutbacks uh, ourselves already to send that water down to the lower basin, so California, Nevada, and Arizona. And they basically say, because we're legally obligated to send you a certain quantity every year, when we get less water, we have to figure out how to cut back in our own right to make sure that we can still meet our legal obligation, whereas the, uh, you know, they contend that the lower basin doesn't necessarily have to play by that, that, uh, they don't, they don't have to deal with the fact that Mother Nature is going to deliver a different amount of water every year because they just count on the fact that the upper basin is going to you know, deliver an empirically consistent amount of water every year. Uh, and they accuse the lower basin of, of, of you know, having a little bit too much liberty with that. Um, and it also you know, is uh, based on the fact that many of the, the lower basin or many of the users in the lower basin are, are some of the largest, uh, some of the growth, uh, you know, the agricultural growth that happens in Southern California accounts for a huge amount of the water that gets used. 
And so there's definitely some finger pointing and it, and it goes both ways, but uh, you know, there, there is finger pointing between the upper and lower basin. And that's, that's one of the major tensions that I would look at as we're going forward is, you know, seeing states like Colorado and Utah um, leading with reluctance to give up some of their water, especially when they are giving it up, you know, maybe for the benefit of, of California and Arizona. Are the amounts of that those allocations from upper to, to lower, are those going to get renegotiated in 26? That is unlikely. That, I mean, that's something mm-hmm. that comes out of the compact. But, oh, okay. uh, we're entering uncharted territory here. Uh, you know, the, the fact uh, of how much water is available is something that has really uh, even caught the smartest people in the room off guard. You know, I've gone to conferences with water managers where you have some incredibly knowledgeable people who have been in this space for decades, and the pace at which this has changed. Uh, you know, this is the type of thing where even five years ago, they were at these conferences talking about, you know, talking about the things that are realities today as hypotheticals. And you go back just a little bit further, and they were talking about climate change as a possibility. And now climate change is, is the biggest thing impacting how much water is available in the Colorado River Basin. And so, I mean, whenever I ask these people, they always tell me, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. But I I really start to believe them once I get a sense of just kind of how shell-shocked they are at the pace at which the river has dried up and the fact that that has forced them to make some uncomfortable decisions very quickly. Let's uh, take a break. We'll come back. Much more, of course, to talk about Colorado River water. Very uh, important topic. And uh, the uh, Colorado River Reporting Project uh, provides reports on that. We're talking with one of uh, the reporters for the project, Alex Hager. You hear his reports here on UPR. We appreciate those. Uh, we're talking about Colorado River water issues on the program today. We'll have much more following this. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with reporter Alex Hager with the Colorado River River Reporting Project. Uh, We're talking about the Colorado River. Um, Historic lows and uh, with climate change, the projections are that uh, that's not going to get better anytime soon. So we've we've talked about uh, several factors here. We'll continue this discussion. Now you can uh, chime in with your question or comment to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. So Alex Hager, you had a report uh, talking about uh, Southern California and uh, some kind of newer draconian outdoor watering restrictions. Um, of course, we you know, anybody who lives in the West is seen these kind of come and go, but um, uh, officials are talking about some uh, some pretty, I could call them drastic measures. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's a reflection of how drastic the water supply situation has gotten. Um, I will say this, though. A bit of good news is that <clears throat> this is not... Uh, This is not the apocalypse. We are not heading towards this doomsday Mad Max future uh, because the fact of the matter is there's a lot of slack in the system. We have found a lot of ways to conserve water in the past, and there are still ways to conserve water going forward, both in cities and on farms. 
And this is an example of a major city, uh, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which has customers kind of throughout greater Los Angeles um, and, and just a huge swath of Southern California. They're the ones who implemented this. And this is, you know, like you said, it seems draconian just in the fact that, uh, you know, a municipal agency is telling you how much water you can use to water your own lawn. Uh, but it is not draconian the fact that uh, I think plenty of people would argue that, uh, you know, one day a week lawn watering is not uh, exactly a, a life-changing sacrifice for a lot of people. Yeah, and yeah. That's an, that's, an, that's an example, basically, of how there is still there are still places where we can find more water. I mean, you know, I, I, I won't put numbers on it, but, I, you know, there's there's actually probably a lot of water that's going to stay in Metropolitan's coffers uh, and, and, you know, stick around for for use in kitchen faucets you know, for, for months to come because it's not getting put on lawns. And that's an example of how cities across the basin are finding ways to stretch the amount of water they've been given a little bit further, uh, just given the fact that they have less coming in on the supply side. In your story, you uh, you have a quote from the uh, district's general manager, the water district's general manager, who says, All, although a lot of us like green lawn, now we're facing a challenge between green lawn and water for our health and safety and Livelihood, I guess. Uh, and, and then you say in the stories, uh, some governments are even considering bans on lawns uh, and grass. And that, that's it's kind of a shift from, I remember back, oh, this is like 10, 15 years ago uh, in the Salt Lake City area where uh, folks were fined for, for not having, uh, you know, gra- for, for zero-scaping uh, their, um, their parking strip. Now governments, I think, are in more encouraging folks to go that way. That tends to be the case. I mean, you're seeing that everywhere from Denver down to Phoenix and, and an awful lot of places in between. Um, and, you know, it really, it, that I think strikes at this idea that the Colorado River water shortage is not the end of life in the West, but it certainly may be the end of life in the West as we know it in a lot of ways. At risk of sounding a little dramatic, it just means that things are going to look a little different. I think that you know, there are places you can go, uh, Vegas and, and a lot of parts of central Arizona, where they also had green lawns. And, and, you know, just sort of the will of the people and also some government mandates have shifted people towards xeriscaping. And so does the Colorado River shortage mean that people are going to have to up and move? Certainly does not yet, but it certainly means that people may have to up and move their lawns if they want to have enough water for things like health and safety. I want to turn to this um Federal government mandate. This has gotten a lot of uh, press. You've you've done a lot of reporting on this. So the seven Colorado River Basin states uh, have been given a deadline, mid-August, to come up with a plan to drastically cut their water use. And the feds, uh, I guess they, they say they'll step in if the states don't come up with a plan, I guess. There's a question of how much clout the, the feds have here. Uh, tell me about this. Well, this is actually really interesting. This is uh, the hot topic in the world of water right now. Uh, But basically, in June, the federal government, the Department of the Interior uh, and and their subsidiary, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, uh, if you're following water issues, the Bureau of Reclamation is is sort of the agency to keep an eye on. They manage uh, the big dams and reservoirs. They're sort of the the federal water management arm, uh, at least for this portion of the country. So they came out and they said, all right, Basin states, you seven states who use water from the Colorado River, you're going to have to figure out how to conserve two to four million acre feet of water. Uh, acre feet, uh, an acre foot is the, the main measurement of uh, the unit of measurement for water. And just for some context, the state of Colorado uses uh, about two million acre feet of water from the river each year. So we're talking about like a whole state's worth of water 
that they're going to have to find at a very minimum. And the federal government gave the states a 60-day deadline to figure it out. They have never in the history of Colorado River management been asked to save this much water all at once. And when it was asked, it sent a shock through the system. That is a ton of water to have to find. And it forces some uncomfortable conversations about compromise between the states. And the federal government said, if you don't find it, we're going to find it for you. But that is a threat and one that, uh, you know, led some states to try and maybe call that bluff. No one really knows if the federal government has the full authority to do that, to sort of take some of the water allocations away, just because the states have largely been left to solve these problems on their own. I mean, the federal uh, the federal intervention has not been a very big part of Colorado River management at all. So um, there's actually some great reporting from my colleague, Luke Runyon. Uh, you can find that at least on KUNC.org. Uh, I'm sure that uh, UPR picked that up as well. Uh, but it sort of explores this question, talking to some former federal officials uh, on, on whether or not this threat is actually something that the feds can follow through on. Uh, but we're, uh, I would say, about two weeks away from that deadline, the end of that 60-day window to figure this out. And we, we kind of don't know how it's going to end. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous amount of water to be conserved. And uh, the upper basin states have more or less come out and said, we are willing to find out if the federal government can come in and, you know, use its authority here because the upper basin states say that it's the lower basin's job to do that conservation. And they are willing to find out if the federal government will force it. But really, there is a lot that's still up in the air. We don't know how much authority the federal government has. We don't know uh, what kind of deals are being worked on behind closed doors. We don't know if there is actually more compromise than people are willing to let on to. But the fact of the matter is that it is a tremendous amount of water that needs to be saved to keep the system running as we come to expect it. And it's a sign that there are some very hard conversations and some truly unprecedented measures that are going to have to be taken as a result of the truly unprecedented degree of drought. What would some of those measures be? We don't know, right? But where would some of this water come from? Well, you know, like I said earlier, uh, realistically, some of it's going to have to come from agriculture. Uh, Cities have done an awful lot to stretch out the amount of water that they're given. But somewhere between 70 to 80 percent of the water in the Colorado River Basin is being used for growing and ranching. And a lot of it's been legally protected by the way that the Colorado River Compact is written. That's that 100-year-old document that's sort of the basis for water governance out here. But you talk to water managers who say it is now simply going to become a numbers game with 80 percent of the water going towards growing and ranching. That's probably where it's going to have to come from. And that is most likely going to come in the form of Probably federal subsidies, but some state money as well to sort of buy out farmers um, and pay them to stop using that water for growing and to sort of reintroduce it to the system, which is going to be very difficult. It's going to mean cultural shifts for communities that have had generational farms and ranches. It's going to mean, you know, at at the sort of most dramatic degree, like the reshaping of the Western economy in some ways, um, or at least, you know, the economies of certain towns and counties and regions where Uh, Farming and ranching has been uh, fairly integral, and it will probably have ripple effects for the price of uh, the product of that agriculture. Uh, You know, you can only take so much water away before the supply of leafy greens starts to shrink around here. And it's 
it's going to have ripple effects for sure. And that, I think, speaks to that idea of, you know, a changing life as we know it throughout the Western U.S. Um, but more than likely, some of that water is going to have to come from agriculture. But we don't have any real firm idea of exactly where they're going to find two to four million acre feet or if they're going to find it at all before that two-week deadline. No, uh, part of what the uh, the government is, is trying to address here is a problem with our largest reservoirs, right? Uh, so the, I think the largest was Lake Mead, the Lake Powell's second largest, right, on the, at least on this system. And uh, reservoirs are, are in trouble. <clears throat> yeah, that is correct. Uh, Lake Mead and Lake Powell are the nation's two largest reservoirs. They're managed by that Bureau of Reclamation. And uh, they have been dropping significantly uh, pretty much every day. Uh, now that runoff is over, they are dropping past already historic lows. Um, and so, you know, in the grand scheme of things, what that means is there is a lot less water to be stored for the states that count on it and the people that count on it. Um, but in a much more immediate practical sense, there are some operational challenges that will come out of water levels dropping so drastically. So uh, this has come up an awful lot in Lake Powell in terms of hydropower generation. Um, there is a certain threshold, a certain line where if the water goes down below that, there won't be enough water, there won't be enough pressure to send water through the turbines uh, that generate hydropower for hundreds of thousands of people in that area. Um, actually, millions, I believe. And there was actually a report that came out yesterday from uh, the Utah Rivers Council and um, the Glen Canyon Institute, some, some uh, river-focused nonprofits in Utah, that uh, said there's another threshold in Lake Powell where if water gets below that, uh, it will have to go through these sort of backup pipes that are uh, kind of a ways down on the dam. And those pipes aren't wide enough to send enough water through that the upper basin states can meet their legal obligation for how much water they have to send through every year. But I think that really just speaks to the fact that as these uh, reservoirs get down lower than anyone ever really thought they would, um, especially, you know, 20, 30 years ago, before we saw the drought, especially in the magnitude that it is today, um, you know, there, there are some real tests for the, the continued functionality of these reservoirs. And then, like I said, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, this is, this is our way to control how much water goes to cities and farms every year. It's our way to account for the fact that sometimes it's rainy and sometimes it's dry. And once we lose the ability to send water through these reservoirs normally, we lose that ability to control water. You know, we lose that ability to uh, account for the fact that there are differences in how much water Mother Nature delivers every year. Interesting. Uh, I, I got a list of upcoming reports from your colleague, Luke Runyon. One of the reports, I think it's coming out this week, is um, <clears throat> he uh, he talked to some people. I don't know if he went uh, to take a look at uh, Glen Canyon, which uh, with the, lo the, the low water level means that part of the canyon is now exposed. Yeah, that's so that this is actually a fascinating story, and I'd love to talk about this one. Um, this actually published this morning, so uh, you will probably be seeing it on UPR in, in uh, a short matter of time. You can All right. You can see at this very moment. Um, and so this is actually a trip that Luke and I went on together. I was ah. tagged along as the uh, photographer, so you can see some of the visuals there, and I highly recommend you do. It is striking. Uh, basically, uh, as the water in Lake Powell recedes, it is unveiling uh, parts of Glen Canyon that have not been seen for decades, um, and parts of Glen Canyon that have been reshaped by the presence of the water above them. So, you know, when the Glen Canyon Dam was built and Lake Powell was created, Glen Canyon uh, was in a lot of ways like the Grand Canyon. 
Um, you know, obviously a little bit different in its character and depth, but there were folks who said it was as beautiful or more beautiful than the Grand Canyon. And you had the Colorado River flowing at the base of it. Then when the dam was put up and filled kind of throughout the 60s and 70s, that became Lake Powell, which has provided a lot of recreational opportunities and supported the economies of towns throughout there and, um, you know, reshaped the character of that area. But now it's returning to what it was before. As the water in Lake Powell reaches these new lows, it's pulling out of these side canyons and big sections of canyon and, and, and away from marinas where people were putting in boats and kind of becoming the river again. Uh, so we started up in Height, Utah, which was sort of the one of the furthest north reaches of the lake, just at the very bottom of Cataract Canyon, if you're familiar with where that is, um, near the, the Dirty Devil River. And um, the marina there, you know, used to be a place where you could park and put in a big motorboat and there was a, you know, a gas station and facilities. And we stood up on the big edge of a cliff and looked down to where that marina was. It is now football fields away from where the river is. And as the water receded, it not only changed, you know, where the shoreline is, but it also left massive deposits of mud, big embankments that are full of all the sediment that settled out while that water was standing still as a lake. And now that it's a river again, all of that muck was sort of left on the side. So we took a boat trip, a three-day boat trip, through Cataract Canyon and through the upper reaches of Lake Powell and some of its side canyons. And it was this really bizarre sort of moonscape. And we were tagging along with folks who are, you know, some of the most seasoned raft guides and, you know, advocates for, for, uh, that section of the Colorado River, and they were seeing things that they'd never seen before. We camped on a beach that would have been under, you know, an amount of water that was probably three houses stacked on top of each other just a decade ago, and it was revealing uh, features that have not been seen in a long time and revealing new features that were being made by this mud sort of falling out. Um, and the really spectacular thing is when you get up into those side canyons, the uh, water has pulled out and revealed these kind of trickling streams and these really verdant riverscapes full of wildlife. So we, we hiked up a few of these side canyons and saw, you know, not only a tremendous amount of vegetation, but tadpoles and frogs and lizards and birds and pools and all of these different things that were previously under the water. Now, of course, you can also see uh, the wreckages of boats and plenty of trash left behind uh, from people and, and, it's um, it's eerie. It's eerie heading in there. But um, it is part another part of how the West is being reshaped and re-sculpted by the fact that the amount of water in places where we have long expected it is no longer there. So I encourage you to read Luke's full story um, and check out some of the pictures to get a sense of what I'm talking about. So you can see that this morning at KUNC.org. All right, I'm sure we'll have that on UPR as, as well. What what an experience. This is, uh, you know, parts of that canyon uh, seen for the first time in decades, right? You were, you were able to be a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's take another break. Come back with our final segment uh, with uh, Alex Hager uh, with the Colorado River Reporting Project. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We are talking with reporter Alex Hager. You hear his reports regularly on UPR. Uh, UPR is part of this uh, network. We're happy to have these reports from the Colorado River Reporting Project. 
And we're talking about the Colorado River and all things related on the program today. Alex Hager, I'd like to just have about six, seven minutes in this last uh, brief segment. I'd like to talk about desalination. You've uh, done a couple of reports on this. I understand you have another report or two coming uh, out. Um, desalination, very expensive, um, but as water levels uh, you know, lower, that's maybe a, a source of, of water for for at least some of the folks, those 40 million folks in the Colorado River Basin. Yeah, and so this is, uh, you'll get a little sneak preview of a story I'm working on right now, actually. So I've got plenty to talk about. I'm in the middle of uh, writing this one right now. But, you know, desalination is one of a few ways that we've uh, seen kind of some some augmentation of the supply, right? Like there's only so much that's falling as rain and snow. But if we can either recycle water that's already in the system or pull from another source, in this case, uh, you know, oftentimes the Pacific Ocean, um, we are able to maybe add some water to that system. However, it is very expensive. It requires specialized equipment and large plants that only put out, you know, a, a relatively small amount of water. So for this story, I visited the Carlsbad desalination plant in Southern California. And that is a plant that is the largest in the Americas. I mean, it is, you know, you do not get bigger in this country uh, or on this continent uh, when it comes to desal. And that supplies somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the supply for just San Diego County. And that's the largest plant. So you're not getting a ton of water out of this. And it is fairly expensive. So for a long time, it was seen as too expensive to really do at scale. But now that there is an awful lot less water in the Colorado River, um, you have been hearing folks say maybe it's time to give it a second look simply because the economics of all water out here is going to change and might tip the scales to make it feasible. However, um, the experts I've talked to have largely said it should be seen as an option, but it should be seen as the last option because there are more economical and easier ways to do this. Uh, it, it's also proven to be a little bit politically unpopular in some instances. There was a, another big facility in Huntington Beach, California, that after, you know, somewhere around two decades of planning and permitting uh, was ultimately voted down. Um, and there was a lot of opposition from envi environmental groups who were worried about some of the brine disposal and, and worried about some of the environmental impacts of having a facility like that. Um, but it was also just a lot of money for what's seen as, uh, you know, not necessarily a uh, uh, a completely life-changing uh, operation there, simply because it just doesn't produce that much water. Um, so it didn't have a, a ton of public support. Um, there is a fairly prominent proposal to expand desalination in Arizona right now. And by in Arizona, I mean they would have a facility running in Mexico that would uh, desalinate water and then pipe it to Arizona. And it is very expensive to move water. Uh, water is very heavy, especially when you're fighting gravity. It costs a lot of money to build and operate any pipeline that carries water across a long distance, and this is certainly an instance of that. Um, so it is a way to augment a supply in uh, you know an area where water is diminishing pretty rapidly, but it is also cost prohibitive. Hmm. Interesting. We'll look forward to more of your reporting on on that. Um. I was struck by, I'll just read the headline on this uh, story from a, a month or two back of your reporting. America's largest home builder is buying a water resources company. Um, this is, I don't know if this is a wave of the future, uh, because if you're going to build homes, I guess, harder to get the, get water, which you have to do to, to get permits to build the homes, right? Yeah, for a long time, you know, we have not seen water be a major hang-up to the development of residential construction, but... 
You know, there are some isolated instances where uh, towns have just, you know, really not had the supply to support the expansion that they want to get into. And this, I think, is uh, falls on that sort of economic side of water where we're seeing a, a pretty major player in the home building space at D.R. Horton, which is the, <clears throat> the largest home builder in America by volume. They, uh, you know, see a lot of value in securing water rights. And I think the fact that they, they, they purchased a lot through the, through the water resources company that they bought is a, a bid that, or at least a sign that we, we might see those water rights get far more expensive in the future and that the private sector is starting to recognize that and act on it. Um, I was, uh, I'm not sure if this was yours or Luke's uh, story that just wasn't emblematic for me. There's an aquifer in Nevada that's being drawn down, you know, multiple users and additional users. And there was a lawsuit and, uh, the, the judge in this case seemed to do the Solomon like thing. He just says, well, you all get less water. Um, I don't know if that portends anything for the future in these upcoming agreements. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I can't speak too specifically to this story, but I, I think across the board, you are seeing people say that there is no way out of this without compromise. You know, it's a it's a collective good, the Colorado River. Um, and the challenge now is how to divvy it up as there is less to go around. There are a lot of people who want a slice of that pie, and the pie itself is getting smaller. And so I think if people are true to their word, and they are likely going to be forced to be true to their word out of necessity, we are going to see some compromise and we are going to see some sacrifice and it's going to be painful sacrifice in a lot of cases on how much water people can expect to use in cities and farms across the basin. So about a minute or so left. Um, what are you working on now? You've told us a couple things uh, that we can look forward to. What, what are you working on or what, um, what are you looking forward to maybe even the coming months? Well, right now, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing this hot topic on the river get settled out. It's going to be how the seven states find two to four million acre feet of water and you know, just have a couple of weeks left to decide and announce how they're going to do it. And I'm very interested to see uh, if they don't do it, what the federal government might do for them. Um, and then in terms of some longer feature length stuff, I'm very curious about uh, this desalination effort. Um, you know, I, I talked to some some really smart people about the future of desalination, and I'm excited to share their uh, their thoughts with the world. I'll also be working on a story about uh, another, another way of sort of augmenting the water supply, which is uh, recycling water. I visited a uh, big recycled water plant uh, down here, sort of a demo recycled water plant down in Southern California that's receiving funding from Arizona and Nevada, uh, just as a sign that a lot of states across the basin are looking to, you know, boost how much water they can have in the system at any given time. And, you know, in this case, that is turning sewage back into drinking water. We have the technology to do it, but we will see if people want to drink it, and we will see if it is worth doing, given how expensive it is. Well, look forward to that. And all the reporting from the Colorado River Reporting Project. We've been talking with reporter Alex Hager, who reports uh, for that project, a uh, conversation about the Colorado River. Alex Hager, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'll do it anytime. Okay, thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening today. We'll go out, as we always do on a Thursday, um, with Leo T. and Skywatcher. Many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here. As we look up, face southeast after darkness is complete. Look a little more than halfway from horizon overhead, and there's a beautiful, large, whitish star, Altair. It's the brightest star over there on the right corner of the Summer Triangle, or Cygnus the Swan. Look left of Altair by a bit more than a fist for the compact little Delphinus, the dolphin, leaping in and out of the edge of the Milky Way.
And doing a little space exploration of my own the other night, I focused the old Orion telescope on Saturn, and it's wearing its rings at an angle, kind of like a flamenco dancer. And a ways to the left on the other side of the big pine, Jupiter has its racing stripes out at about the same angle as Saturn's rings. And sporting two moons in front and two in the back, a couple of hours later I looked again and one of the moons had apparently gone behind the big planet, or maybe a cloud came over. And that was in the front yard with a street light on the corner. It's shooting star season, the upcoming Perseid meteor shower, one of the most anticipated and popular night sky shows of the year. It's going to be joined by August full moon at its peak on August 12th and 13th, but the Perseids, which occur annually between July 14th and September 1st, that's going on now, so get out to the waves, the rocks that feel like a wave, or mountain lakes that make waves, and take your chances. This year's meteor shower peaks, it so happens with the appearance of that full moon, which will reduce the number of meteors to 10 to 20 per hour. But get out there anyway. It's a great reason to be out and celebrate meteors by the light of the moon, by yourself or with some friends. Artemis 1 moon mission will launch on a test flight up and around the moon with an uncrewed Orion capsule on a multi-week mission to test out the systems and see if the SLS rocket and Orion capsule are ready to carry astronauts to the moon again. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's many cultures, one sky. This week we're going to tap into artistic and creative author Ellen Malloy's body of work as she quotes New Mexico author Edith Warner. I believe this is from the 1920s. This is a day when life and the world seem to be standing still. Only time and the river flowing past the mesas. I cannot work. I go out in the sunshine to sit receptively for what there is in the stillness and calm. I am keenly aware that there is something. Just now it seemed to flow in a rhythm around me and then to enter me. Something which comes in a hushed inflowing. All of me is still and yet alert, ready to become part of this wave that laps the shore on which I sit. Somehow I have no desire to name or understand. It's enough that I should feel and be of it in moments such as this, and most of the hatred and ill will, the strained feeling, is gone. I know not how. So join Edith in feeling the inflow as you look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations statewide and streaming live at upr.org.